would you join me today in the book of Genesis chapter 3? Book of Genesis chapter 3. And I want to read verses 1 through 7, clause A. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, clause A. I am going to read from the New Living Translation, so the language may be a bit more contemporary. Word of the Lord. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate too. At that moment their eyes were opened. Word of the Lord you may be seated. As I continue to explore and expound upon the sermon series I developed some weeks ago entitled The Power of Words, uh, today we want to look at this episode in the book of Genesis under the title, Words Laced with Deceit. Words Laced with Deceit. I want to centralize my thesis around the opening seven words of the first verse in Genesis 3. Now the serpent said to the woman. That's all I want. Now the serpent said to the woman. Question. What causes individuals to embrace the propaganda that is espoused by personalities of Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, the Taliban, and ISIS. How does one believe in the words of a Jim Jones and a David Koresh, whose words both invite and convince persons to commit themselves to a suicidal conclusion? How does leaders of this manner utilize such words in their context to create persuasion, to even empower the individuals to believe that they are somewhat a bit indivincible, pushes them to a point where they are inspired and feel divine in committing their lives to death on behalf of the person speaking to them? 
We are sitting here in reality today because someone spoke words that we found to be both moving and beneficial and words that convince us enough to believe that this space or this experience of walking with God requires us to do so. We committed ourselves to the words that someone gave by way of an invitation, come now and let us reason together. We accepted it, we adopted it, and we believe it. And some of us have even hinged our very existence on the words that we read in the sacred text called the Bible. It's called the Bible, Biblios, merely because it is a compilation of what is believed to be divine words coming from the divine voice of a living God. I am disagreement with those who pose their psychoanalytical criticism of Sigmund Freud. Freud, without question, is indeed a brilliant mind, was a brilliant mind, but he had an overwhelming criticism of religion on one hand, and yet at the same time, on the other hand, Freud still recognized that religion means something to the human being. He gave us, arguably, what we call now the attachment theory, and the attachment theory says that I need something deeper than I am to be attached to. Follow me now. Not necessarily true that he gave us the next theory, but there is certainly the evidence of his contribution. He provides for us what we call evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology says that in my mind, as time progresses, if I follow the path of normality, if my mind constantly grows, I have an aspiration and inspiration in my mentality to want to probe for something that is deeper than I am. In fact, Freud, in his text, The Future of Illusion, described what he called the deep psychic need of the human being. He calls it the deep psychic need because he contends in his writing that there is something in us that desires a relationship with supernatural beings or being, and it is that connection within us that constitutes the very emotional structure. So what Freud was saying was that in us, Freud says even in my own atheistic and skeptical mind, I can't deny the fact that there is something living on the inside of human beings. He uses the word homo sapiens, of course, but he attaches homo religios to it and says there's something that's in us that desires to know a divinity outside of us. And it desires to know that divinity to the point where it's willing to relinquish the control of their life to that divinity that they may feel secure. So Freud used the idea to paint the image that every child feels secured because that child has been taught to have confidence and faith in its father. And Freud says when you understand as a child that you need the protection of your father in return, 
you enter into a relationship that suggests that you are willing to submit all of your being to your father because your father has promised to protect you. Now watch this. So you might ask the question, what in the world does that have to do with Genesis chapter 3? Well, listen closely to the language that's argued in Genesis 3. Because when you read what's happening in terms of the episode, there is something going on first in what we call a dialogue, a conversation that takes place between two individuals. The problem is that if you read this text in its sacred mode, you find the presence of humanity conversing with the presence of non-humanity. Now let's just think about this. What person, arguably, but yet on the same token, not necessarily so insane, converses with animals, non-human existence. Well, this text says that a voice that we had never heard before in the text enters the Garden of Eden. And rather than to enter to converse with God, the voice converses with human beings. The voice says to the woman, did God really say that? Which suggests to me that this, in the form of a serpent, must have been standing around listening to the conversation between God and God's creation. Because God clearly made it clear, you, you, you have access to every tree in this garden Except the tree in the middle. For the tree in the middle is not to be eaten from, nor is it to be touched. Lest the moment that you do, you will surely die. The serpent arrives and poses the opportunity to dialogue. That's why... There are three gateways to the human anatomy. There is the gateway of the eyes, there is the gateway of the ears, and there is the gateway of the mouth. And you gotta be very careful about what and who enters either of those spaces. Because you'll learn in this story, as we just read these first seven verses, that this serpent is wise enough to know that that is how you persuade individuals to be able to do whatever you want them to do. That's how powerful words are. The trick is to understand how to craft the words, how to use the words so that you can create perhaps manipulation behind the words to get what you desire. Follow me now. Watch what the serpent does. The serpent shows up. Notice, doesn't ask God, God, is, is that really a fair thing to do to the human creation when if you are omniscient you already know what they're going to do they're going to violate your suggestion and do what they want to do but instead the serpent goes directly to the human being and says did God really say that 
to create after your dialogue with God. Have you ever noticed that whenever you have good time with God, you sit there and you start talking with God and you're praying with God and you can, as if God is right there, you guys are having hand-to-hand conversation. Immediately after that, the devil shows up to do something about that dialogue that you just heard. Case in point, read Matthew 4, and as soon as Jesus comes out of 40 days and fasting and praying and conversing with the Father, immediately as he goes into the wilderness, here comes the devil who shows up and says, let me break that dialogue that Jesus has with God and let me start interjecting my own opinion. And that's what the devil wants to do. That's why the devil works hard at keeping us from praying because the devil knows if we ever start developing a constant rapport with God on high, we'll develop a discerning spirit to recognize when the devil is trying to break in and mess up my conversation. And when he's trying to mess up my conversation, that means that I don't want you to flow in the ever power of God because if you ever realize how much power you really have in talking with God, you will walk a different life more victoriously, more empowered, more in the sense of knowing that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And the devil shows up in that garden to not talk to God but to talk to Eve. Did God really say that. You just came through one of the most trying times of your life. I mean you are in the middle of the storm. You are on your way to the storm but you can sense God saying don't worry about it. Don't trip out. I got your back. Hold on to my hand. Keep trusting me. Keep relying on my word. And the devil shows up with one question. Did God really say that? To cause us to engage in dialogue with evil that it might raise our skepticism in reference to God's word. So Freud was on to something. The reason why I need dialogue with my father because my father has promised me protection. Under his wings, he says in the Psalms, will he hide me Will he protect me? Will he provide for me the provision that I need under his wings? Did God really say that? Did God really say that he will open up the windows of heaven in your faithfulness to him? Did God really say that? Did God really say that by his stripes you are healed? Did God really say that? Did God really say that when there is nothing, he can turn it out and make it something because he's a specialist when nothing is involved to create something? Did God really say that? Satan says that not God, but talk with me. Dialogue with me because God is going to say a whole lot of stuff that you may not actually see come to pass. But talk with me because I'm relevant and I am existential. I'm now. Talk, talk with me. I, I know God. Remember, I used to be in the heavens with God. I, I, I used to be God's minister of music. I used to direct the choir. I, I know God's expectation, but I also know that you can rise up 
against God. Now, he don't tell you that God will deal with you if you rise up against God, but, but you can rise up and rebel against God. I, I, I know God. Talk with me, says Satan. Did God really say that? Did God really promise you that this will not destroy you? Did God really say that? How deep do you believe John 10? The thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundant. How, how, how deep do you believe that? Because if you read through the lines, Jesus is trying to tell you there are two powers at war here. And one of those voices you're going to listen to. Is it going to be the thief? who desires to steal and kill and if given the opportunity ultimately destroy you or is it going to be the voice of a divine God who promised to give life and to give it more abundantly here it is in the story he poses this question to Eve did God really say that and Eve made a critical mistake she took the opportunity to talk with the devil. Or did she really make a mistake? The late A.W. Tozer wrote a book entitled, I Talk Back to the Devil. And A.W. Tozer argues that although we may think it's not a good thing to talk back to the devil, he argues there's a difference between talking back to the devil and dialoguing with the devil. By talking back, he simply says, what I do is when the Satan starts raising questions to my mind in reference to the authority and truth of God's word, I just take God's word and talk back to the devil and let the devil know exactly what authority I'm standing in. I don't have dialogue with the devil. I just tell the devil what he needs to do and how he's going to get there and how immediately I expect for that to be done. But Eve enters into dialogue. She converses with the serpent, and the text says in verse 2, she said, well, God said, and we have access to all the trees. We just can't borrow the one in the middle, because if we do, we will surely die. Be careful. This text argues, be careful who you dialogue with. Who you allow to enter into the gateway of your ears. Be careful who speaks into you because everybody talking about Jesus ain't going to heaven. Everybody who holds a Bible in their hand doesn't necessarily mean that they have a relationship with God. Everybody who's talking about that they have a calling from God doesn't necessarily mean that they really are called. In fact, there's an Old Testament character who says that they wanted to hear a word from the Lord. And when the word showed up, the prophet Micaiah, he comes to tell a word. And the individual says, you know what? Don't, don't, don't prophesy. I get so sick. Every time you prophesy, all you prophesy is bad stuff. Tell me something good that's going to happen. And the prophet says, well, I would tell you something good, except you haven't done anything to deserve good listening. Be careful who you let into your hearing space. Because if you're not careful, a second thing will happen. 
Once you enter into bad dialogue, then what you get in return is a word of doubt. Listen to what Satan says in verse 4. You won't die. Won't nothing happen to you. That's God's way of trying to intimidate you. Or better said, that's God's way of saying, as he said in verse 5, he's afraid that you will be a God like God is. That word of doubt suggests enough to cause Eve to pause and to consider, is Satan possibly right? Because look at the text. In verse 5, the serpent says, God is afraid that you will be a God like him. And like him means you will know the difference between good and evil. One of the ammunitions of the devil is to make sure that you have a doubt in reference to the word of God. He doesn't want you to have faith in the word, but doubt in the word that if God said it, it may or may not come to pass. There's a doubt right there. But then in that doubt comes a deceitful word. Listen to what he says. God doesn't want you to be a God like God is. You will then possess, you will possess knowledge. Here's a big word. Your epistemological focus will be changed. That just means your process of learning will be no longer relegated to what God gives you, but you can find it all by yourself. There's a suggestion by the serpent that you don't need God on the throne of your life, totally contrary, even centuries later, to what Zygmunt Freud is. Freud says there is something that in, that's in us that desires to have somebody on the throne of our heart. And I don't know about you, but I, I found that somebody for me. I... I want that somebody who knows how to call me out of darkness into the marvelous light of his grace. I, I want that somebody who can, I can call on in the middle of a storm and he will stand up and calm the raging sea. I, I found that somebody who not only can be in the storm but that will stand with you and no matter how burning the moment may be, he will navigate you and lead you out. I want that somebody to sit on my throne. And here it is, the serpent, the devil, Satan, Beelzebub says, you, you, you don't need God on your throne. You, you can do well all by yourself. You don't need God to help you out. All you need is to realize you got it all in you. You got everything you need on the inside of you. You don't need the God restriction. I told you. Words laced with deceit. Have you noticed the moment that you decide that you don't need God to help you is when your life turns into a very chaotic episode? Have you noticed that the very moment you decide that you don't need to pray about that, you don't need to seek God's direction, that your life goes in a rain? Have you noticed that when you cut God out, you are left alone to row back to shore in the middle of a storm all by yourself. But thank goodness for grace. 
Thank goodness for God's mercy. Thank goodness for God's everlasting love. That when I cut God out, God doesn't cut me out. But he extends unto me the continuous flow of his provision. Notice when you read this story, God never interrupts. God never stops the dialogue. God never pushes his own agenda in terms of what's happening. God remains silent. And the serpent says, God is afraid that you'll be a God like he is. Look at the text. And the most disturbing thing happens when the woman lets down her God in verse 6. And the reason why I chose this translation is because of the way that it's worded. And allows her gateway to her ears and her gateway to her eyes and the gateway of her mouth to be violated by the serpent. The Bible says the woman was convinced. That means that she decided that what God had said previously about the tree was not true. But she bought the words of the serpent who told her, you are all the God that you need. Listen to your own words. And what did he do? He showed her something about paradise. Look at the text. She was convinced that the tree that she saw, look at the text, verse 6, was beautiful and it looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it had to give her, so she took of the fruit, she ate it. And verse 7, clause A says, her eyes. You not only got to guard the gateway of your ears, but you better be careful about what you allow your eyes to see. Because in this text, it sort of insinuates that what she sees is a transition from godly appearance to the appearance of her own fleshly desires. And you can be amazed at how we can change what God says when we have a desire to do something that doesn't line up with the word of God. We will repaint the picture because the repainting fits the image I have in my mind instead of the image that God has provided from God's mind. And that's what the serpent does. We organize her imagination to the point where she decides, I am now going to see my life from my point of view instead of God's divine point of view. You might ask, well, what's the problem with that? Well, it'd be odd if you knew how everything would work out and if you knew all of the right decisions to make. But you and I don't know that. In fact, if it hadn't been for the Lord who intervened when we made the wrong decision, we would have a disastrous outcome. Think of what happens the many times that we decided to disregard God's image and God's idea of doing something and did it our own way. How the outcome came about. A total disaster. 
And now the woman's eyes are open. She does. She has access now to knowledge between good and evil. But you got to be careful because when you allow someone to invade your hearing and your seeing, you will start speaking that will involve not just yourself but others as well. What does she do? She took of the fruit and verse 6 says she gave it to her husband and he did eat. The problem with that is now you got the blind leading the blind and both of them are going to fall in an awful space. And verse 7, clause A says, both of their eyes are open. And now they see life different. Because what do they see? They see life as God never wanted them to see it. With the confusion and the chaotic nature, the serpent used words to change their life. I just came by to tell you to watch how you formulate your words because your words will either construct and build someone to a space where they are progressive in life or if you say them wrong, it could very easily deconstruct and destroy them and they end up never appreciating the possibilities that they have in their life. We often take the power of words for granted. We think that they are just stuff that we say, not realizing, A, once they leave your mouth, they are in the atmosphere to be empowered by other spirits than yours. And secondly, once they arrive at their destination, the individual that you are dialoguing with will now have the option of trying to figure out are these words of affirmation, words of criticism going to help me, but are going to take me three steps backwards? We further further realize that if Proverbs 19 is correct, that life and death is in the power of our tongue, this small member, says James, is like a viper. It's like a snake itself. Although it never actually injects you with its lethal poison and the snake never actually curls around your body to suffocate you and the snake actually never, never ends up spitting its venom on you, the very fact that the words that you speak carry all of those characteristics if you're not careful because what happens is the motive behind what you say. That's the reason why you should just simply weigh in the balance of what someone say to you just to see if these words got the motive of inspiration. Because man, I'm going to tell you, some people can say some things so slick. We've, we've learned how to say stuff. And we've learned, we've learned how to curse without cursing. We've learned how to curse to the point where we are actually cursing somebody out. And they just sitting there trying to figure out, 10 minutes later, did they just cuss me out? <laughs> no, they didn't use curse words. They used other words. They use the power 
of words. Here's my closing story. Jesus tells us how powerful words are. He told the disciples on one occasion that the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But Jesus never leaves it without a, a practical example. And so on his way to healing a man's daughter, the man who happens to be a temple official says to Jesus, you don't even have to show up at the house. Just speak a word right where you're standing and my daughter can be healed. On the way to seeing the daughter, Jesus is interrupted by a woman who has what we describe a blood deficiency. She's been wrestling with it for 18 years and she's been struggling. In fact, one writer says she spent all at the physicians who just could not supply the right remedy to fix her issue. You read that story closely, it's not so much initially about the faith factor, not initially, as it is the word she used. In a crowd that has marginalized and disowned her and told her that because of your condition, you don't belong here. You can't come out where we are. But something within her, back to Freud, in the inside of her, says that Jesus is in town. And I don't know about you, but I've heard by word that he's healing. Stranger in the city. And he's healing. I just got the news this morning that he's healing. He'll heal your body. And she said, pushing her way through the crowd, that there was something on the inside of her that said, don't, don't worry about the words that they said to marginalize you, but you find through the words that you heard about Jesus, she pressed. Ah, that, that's a Greek word that says that she took and took her hands and, and made her way all through the crowd. She, she pushed and pushed and pushed. But here's the word. She said within herself, here's how powerful words are, if I can just touch. Did, did, did you get that? It, if, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Second word, I'm going to be made whole. Wait, wait a minute. Nobody who has ontological logic, that just simply means internal comprehension of what it means to exercise reason, can be healed by touching. Ah, oh, but see, you're not dealing with an ordinary person when you're talking about the Christ. You're, you're dealing with God in the human form who knows how in a very theophanal manner show up and you even know he's there. Watch this. God can show up to the point where when there's chaos in the middle of the moment, yet there is a peace that surpasses all under... Talk my words. Talk my words when God says, peace, be still. If I can, I can just touch him, I'll be made whole. Here's another word. Who touched me? Who, who, who touched me? 
Here's another word of skepticism. How, how, how you want us to know who touched you? All these people out here, Jesus. Come on, how, how are we going to realize that? No, no, no. Someone whose words are laced not with deceit, but with deliverance touched me and says, Matthew, the virtue went out. That, that means that the power to heal left not the hem of the garment, but the wearer of the garment, the power went out. And, and read that story, and it says that the girl, once she reaches out, she reneges and bounces back into the crowd to hide herself. And when she hears that Jesus is asking, who was it that touched me? She steps forward and says, it is I, but let me explain why I did so. And Jesus, in the text, interrupts her and says, child, you ain't got to tell me nothing. The way you got faith, that's all good. I, I am here to set you free. You ain't got to tell me nothing. And that's what I love about God. You don't have to tell them all the details. I already know it. You ain't got to give me all the X, Y, Z. I already know it. Just the fact that you stretched out by faith, believing in my word that I can heal you. So it was. But the enemy was lurking in her mind. Why you, why you going to go out in that crowd, damn? They don't, they, don't, they're not gonna, they don't want you there. Did God really say that? That's all I can tell somebody today. That Satan wants to arise a, question, arise a question in your mind in reference to what God has said in reference to your condition. And God prophetically wants me to tell you, it's already done. But don't deviate from what he said in the word. Don't let the enemy steal. Remember Jesus told the story about bird seeds or seeds flying down in the ground. And it, it can fall into some good soil and some bad soil. And every time the word is dropped, the enemy comes to steal the seed. Somebody today, hearing my voice, is going to miss this seed or they're going to allow the devil to steal their seed out of their soul. They could walk out of here a changed person. They could walk out of here an inspired person. They can walk out of here an uplifted person. But they're going to allow the serpent to raise the question of verse 1. Did God really say that? And you're going to be guilty of verse 6. You are convinced what the serpent says. When Jesus saw that that woman had touched him and had given that confession of belief in him, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. You know what's going to make you whole today? Not listening to the serpent who's whispering in your ear but listening to God's voice in the divine word. Allowing God to speak to you. And I don't mind my eyes being open. It's just a matter of what I'm opening to. See, every time God does something for us, God is opening up our eyes wider and wider to see the possibilities of what God can do in the context of what we think is impossible. So I, I just thought I'd invite you before I leave. I'm done now. 
to take a little inventory and just sort of rewind the tape of your life in the imagination of your mind and sort of pinpoint, good God Almighty, this ought to be a shouting point for somebody, sort of pinpoint the moments in which God opened your eyes to something you never thought God would do for you. How you began to see, did something new if it had not been for divine intervention. You wouldn't have never experienced it. Now, if you can't do that, that's okay. Just, just, just keep on living. There are going to be some moments in which God will let you sit down in a context where the impossibility of human deliverance is not possible. It's going to take a divine help from God to bring you out, to open that door, to send that right person down your path, to protect you. Here's my story, and I'm done. I know I told you that before, but I'm a Baptist preacher. I tell you a whole lot, a whole lot of times. So one of my deacons tell me this morning, Pastor, we... I was, I was about to cross, the, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about divine intervention, and I'm talking about knowing the word, and I'm talking about trusting the word of God, watch this, to intervene even when you are not aware that you need intervention. So he's about to step out into an intersection, just step out there, thought for sure that the oncoming car was going to stop. Just going to step on, you know, she's going to stop. Step out there, but felt something yanked him back to the corner. I, I know, I know. There was somebody behind him that saw traffic in both directions. Or, or, or that was some intuition within him that told him you need to step back. Well, I told you God show up in very theophanic manners. That means that God can show up and you don't even see God in the showing up moment. And maybe God came down to affirm his word. I'll never leave you nor forsake you and I'll be a fence all around you and in the secret tabernacles of my wings I'll hide you. He reaches down and snatches him back to the corner and lets the car pass. Watch this. And then the car stops and the driver steps out and says I never saw you see that's a shout no you can't shout because you weren't the one whom the angel snatched back but every now and then you ought to shout for somebody else's victory because it just might be your next time that an angel shows up. In fact, I believe there are about four or five of y'all who can testify there were some times when I know that it was an angel who showed up and became a fence all around me, who pulled me out of a burning furnace, who pulled me out of a ditch of life, who lifted me up from the ditch of failure. I'm talking about God showing up and I didn't even see God but I felt his hand all around me I felt his joy all within me I felt his power working all through me I'm talking about God who knows how to show up all because of his word and my eyes are open I, I, I now see I now see I now see 
Old folk used to sing, you can't be God-given. No matter how you try. I know they were talking about money, but here's where I see it. The more that I give him in terms of praise and thanksgiving, the more he gives back unto me. He encouraged me, praise the Lord, bless the Lord at all times. Let the redeem of the Lord say so. So Eve enters dialogue with the serpent. God never intervenes. She buys into the serpent's conclusion that God can be dethroned. And the Bible says her eyes were open. And she brought somebody else into the mix. She gave unto her husband. And he did eat too. Two fools of peas in the pot. Both of them are now in bad shape. Can't tell you the conclusion because that's my next sermon, but thanks be unto God, he comes and shows up to make 